Thank you once again. Good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. Our lesson this week is number 27 in a series of broadcasts dealing with theological subjects. And the subject we've been discussing now for a good many weeks in these broadcasts is the subject of Christology, the person, nature, and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In preceding lessons, we've discussed matters that deal with Christ's nature, his relationship to the Father, uh, his sinlessness, the humanity of Christ, and the deity of Christ. And in particular, the deity of Christ as it is related to the virgin birth of Christ and the prophecies concerning the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're coming on this series of studies late, you've missed a great deal of material on theology proper, studies on the Trinity, and studies on God the Father, and now studies on God the Son. As we remarked in our broadcast of the Trinity, there's no doubt at all whatsoever about the deity of the three persons of the Godhead, nor is there any uh, controversy about the matter of the Trinitarian formula. After all, the entire universe is based on a threefold continuum. Any scientist knows that. And the time, uh, matter, and space continuum, each one is insignificant and meaningless without the other two, exactly as each one of these breaks down into three various groups. Uh, for example, uh, time breaks into past, present, and future. Energy breaks into source, generation, and procession. And matter breaks into phenomena, the other two parts. That is, the Trinity is not a uh, Roman Catholic doctrine or a Baptist teaching. The Trinity is the nature and structure of the universe and all phenomena in any realm of any science, physical or otherwise. And in dealing with these matters, of course, we're dealing with the soul of God, God the Father, the body of God, God the Son, manifest in the flesh, and the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, whom we'll talk about in our next series of lessons. However, these broadcasts on this particular series, 34 broadcasts, deal with the subject of Christology, and in broadcast number 27 today, we are discussing the character of Christ. The lesson is the analysis of what kind of a person Jesus Christ really was. We often sing or pray, I want to be like Jesus, and yet when we stop to think about it, what does this mean? I want to be like Jesus. The desire is most noble, but we need uh, to emulate him in more than one point. And there are some points, of course, where an imitation of Christ is satanic. The greatest imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ was the devil. And, of course, he's the perfect counterfeit of Christ. Jesus Christ is spoken of as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The devil is spoken about as a roaring lion. Jesus Christ is spoken of as the Prince Messiah or the Christos anointed one. The devil is called the anointed cherub that covereth and is called the Prince of the power of the air. As the Lord Jesus Christ is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the devil is said to be the king over all the children of pride. And as the theophany of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was the angel of the Lord, so we are told in the Second Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan is transformed into an angel of light, and God is light, and the devil is called the god of this world in Second Corinthians chapter 4. So when we talk about being like Christ, we must be never always on the alert and never careful never to confuse this with imitating Christ. The imitation Christ or imitation of Christ is the work of Satan. Christ is our example in 1 Peter 2.21, not only in action, but in character. And Romans 8.29, to be conformed to his image is basically being conformed to his character, although Romans 8.29 is not a reference to the confirmation of this life. As anyone can see in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the references of the second advent of Jesus Christ, when you will have the physical body that Christ has now, the glorified physical body. Uh, very often people who allegorize the Scripture and follow the famous mythological school of Alexandria, their uh, come buzzling, bum-foozling, flop-blobbling method of private interpretation, 
often take passages like Romans chapter 8, 29, and make you think that you can be conformed to Christ's image now in this life. And this is the height of folly. The reference is obviously the same sort of reference we find in Philippians chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 3. For we read, Beloved, now we the sons of God, and doth not yet appear what we shall be. What we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And again, the writer of Philippians says, Who shall change our vile body, and fashion it like according to his glorious body, by that working whereby he is able to subdue all things, even unto himself. Now, in speaking of Christ's character, first of all, the basic thing to notice is that Jesus Christ was holy. Christ once said to the Pharisees in the Gospel of John, There was no unrighteousness in him. He claimed to be sinless. And I dare say that's a great deal more than any of your idols can claim, and if they did, nobody would believe them anyway. Jesus Christ was holy, and we covered this in our lesson on the sinlessness of Christ. Jesus Christ was holy, absolutely holy. He was without a sin nature from birth. Moreover, he did not commit any sin known to man or God, and always did that which was correct and pure. Although he was tempted, the doctrine of peccability excludes the idea that temptation is sin. In the doctrine of peccability and systematic theology and dogmatic theology, we understand that sin does not enter until the third state of peccability, which is called debate. That is, when the object is presented to the person, the temptation, this is not a sin. When illumination is given about the object of temptation, this doesn't constitute sin. But the third step, where the culprit begins to debate as to whether or not he'll take the desired course of action, after having light upon its moral consequences, that's where sin begins. And, of course, uh, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Long before a man commits a sin overtly, he commits it inwardly, and long before he commits it inwardly, he debates or toys with the idea as to whether he will or not. In Acts 3.14, Peter refers to Jesus Christ as the Holy One and the Just One. The Savior manifested his holiness in loving righteousness and hating iniquity. This is seen in his cleansing of the temple, showing his hating of iniquity, and his denunciation of sin and hypocrisy in Matthew 23. The most scathing, negative blast of hate literature the world ever seen or ever heard of came from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. We deal with international socialists, and people are always worrying about hate literature and gloom literature. We must remember these godless, depraved, corrupt, filthy people only resent having their sins named. They like to whitewash their sins. And dealing with this godless, depraved, corrupt specimens of humanity, we must always remember that they hate negative preaching about sin because they themselves are negative in their hatred for God and for the Word. A man who loves everything is a demon. In the Bible, you are told to love righteousness and hate iniquity, prove that which is good, hold fast to that which is good, cleave to that which is good, and abhor evil. The Bible is a balanced book and recognizes what we call polarities. And these polarities, of course, are the, the, uh, the plague of the modern relativistic socialist who likes to think of no objects except the people trying to overthrow the government. I mean, there's a hole in everybody's armor if you sit down and talk to them long enough. The Lord Jesus Christ hated iniquity and denounced it in no uncertain terms, and his negative, scathing, blistering, antisocial, anti-humanitarian blast in Matthew 23 would peel a, the blisters on a brick wall at 500 yards. And if you don't know that, I suggest you read some Bible instead of the funny papers. Galatians 3.13 said that Jesus Christ was a curse for us under the law. 
Romans 4, 6 says, God imputes righteousness to those who receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ then was, first of all, holy. Secondly, in his character, he was loving. The Savior's love was manifested in two ways. First of all, in his love for the Father. This is perfectly apparent by his statements to do the Father's will. His express indication that he came to carry out the Father's will. His avowed purpose in laying down his life for the sheep because his Father desired it to be so. And the manifest genuineness of this uh, profession by the fact that in Gethsemane, when sweating great drops of blood, he said, Not my will, but thine be done. The Savior's love is manifest in two ways, then. First toward his Father, and then to mankind. In John 14:31, he said, But that the world may know that I love the Father. He manifested his love by obedience to the Father. In John 6:38, notice we read, For I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Notice also the exact same profession in John 14, verse 31. Jesus finished the work the Father gave him to do, according to John 17:4 and John 19:30. Then Christ showed his love for the world in John 3:16 by the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8:9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. The supreme proof of his love was voluntary dying for sinners. In John 15:13, we read, Greater love with no man than this, but a man lay down his life for his friends. But we read about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he laid down his life for the ungodly. We read that when we're without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. We grave we great read greater love hath no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends, but God commendeth his love toward us, and why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. Then Jesus Christ loved sinners and showed his love for sinners. He showed it in a special love for saved sinners. In Ephesians five twenty five, Christ loved the church. Jesus has a special love for his own. We read in John thirteen verse one, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. But then in addition to that, he showed enough love for the unsaved world to shed blood for their sins. In Luke 19.10, the Lord Jesus Christ said he came to seek and save that which was lost. In Matthew 9.13, Jesus uh, shows how he obeyed his own teaching of Matthew 5.44 by loving his enemies and praying for his enemies. On the cross in Luke 23.34, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus loved children. The Bible gives this beautifully in the scenes in Mark 10, verse 13 to 16. Now he demonstrated this love for sinners by becoming poor, that we might become rich. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might become rich. Here's somebody who came down and laid his wound alongside your wound to share your suffering. Here's somebody that came down and took on your poverty so he could bear your poverty and your burdens. Here's somebody that came down and was tempted in the flesh like you are so he could understand your temptation, your suffering, and your sorrow, and your burdens. And this is a manifestation, one of the great characteristics of his nature, his love. The character of Christ was holy, and Jesus Christ was loving. The supreme proof of his love was voluntarily dying for us. Jesus continued to manifest his love to us daily by daily care and sustenance. The great promises of the New Testament epistles, such as 
My God shall supply all your need through his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All these great promises show that Jesus Christ's love does not end at Calvary, but continues on and on and on. And as the psalmist said, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his mercy. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. The Lord Jesus Christ was holy. The Lord Jesus Christ was loving. And he had a love for souls. If you want to follow the Savior's example, whatever you do, don't waste time to talk in tongues. He never talked in tongues a day in his life. If you want to follow the Savior's example and be Christ-like, then get the never-dying love for the souls of men wandering in sin that he had himself. He came as the good shepherd to seek lost sheep. In John 10:16, he said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. He loved the multitudes. He came to die for the world, all mankind. His ministry was mostly one of individual soul winning, reaching them one by one. For example, in the first chapter of John, John records his dealing with two of John's disciples, Andrew and his friend. In John 1, verse 37 to 40, then he's dealing with Simon Peter in John 1, 42, then with Philip, John 1, 43, and then with Nathaniel, John 1, 47. In John chapter 3, he's spending some time to deal with Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, he's spending time with a woman at the well of Samaria. In John chapter 9, he spends the whole time dealing with one man born blind. He's spending a lot of time going after individual souls and giving them individual instruction and winning them to himself. So we shouldn't be afraid to spend hours with a single soul in order to try to reach that soul for Jesus Christ. In Luke 15:4, the Lord Jesus Christ bared his heart to go and search for the lost. When he said, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? Jesus always entered into the joy of finding the lost sinner. For example, see Luke 15, verse 5 to 7. And in Luke 15, verse 24, Jesus said when the prodigal returned home that they began to be merry. He said there'd be great rejoicing in heaven and the presence of the angel of God over one sinner that repented than over ninety-nine just persons which had no need of repentance. Now, if you want to be like Christ and say, make me like Jesus, then you better pray you'll be conformed to this love for souls and this love for individuals. He was deeply grieved at every soul that rejected him. And in Luke 19, verse 41 to 42, he wept over the stiff-necked inhabitants of Jerusalem, not over the city, but over the souls in that city, the individual lost men and women. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He had such a burden for souls, the last thing he did before he died on the cross was win a soul. The last thing the Lord Jesus Christ did before he died on the cross was turn to a dying thief and accept him. And he told that dying thief, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. This is the perfect example of the soul winner and the person who is soul conscious, the person who is an opportunist to win souls at every opportunity. One of the greatest of this breed, of course, was old John Harper, the old Scotch preacher, who came over to the Moody Bible Institute back in the 1920s or 30s to give a lecture. And on the way over, he was on the of a, a ship that went down, and out there in the icy waters of the Atlantic Ocean, dying, he was floating up and down, hollering out Scripture verses to sinners, and there was one particular man who got back aboard a lifeboat and was rescued. When he came back to New York, he told about the case. He said, I was out there in the dark. He said, people were screaming and crying and praying and cursing, 
And he said, I was in icy cold waters and turning numb. I knew I was going to drown. And he said, I began to holler and cry, help, 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 help me. Somebody help me. Can I get any help? What will I do? Oh, my God, what will I do? And he said he saw a silhouette arise in the dark in front of him on the crest of a wave. And at night, the silhouette was all he could see. And he heard a voice holler out in a Scotch brogue, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And he did. And he not only got saved physically, he is so saved by trusting Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. The last thing John Harper did before he sank beneath the icy waters of the North Atlantic was to lead a soul to Jesus Christ. All right, speaking further about the character of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was compassionate. For the Bible's shortest verse says, Jesus wept, John 11:35. Jesus' compassion was manifested toward the multitudes in Mark 6:34. It caused him to be concerned for people's physical need, like John 6:5. Jesus' compassion on the sinners forced him to heal the blind, Matthew 20, 34. He had compassion on those possessed with demons, Mark 9, 22, and Luke 4, 41. He had compassion on the poor lepers, Mark 1, 40. He became a shepherd to the lost sheep. He became a savior to the doomed. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He loved in word and deed. Further about Christ's character, he was prayerful. The four Gospels give us a glimpse into the great prayer life of the Savior, but none so strong as Hebrews 5, 7, where it says in the days of his flesh when he'd offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears. It was not uncommon for the Lord Jesus Christ to pray all night. See Luke 6, 12 and Mark 1, 35. He prayed before his baptism, before the temptation, before the choosing of the disciples. Jesus ended his earthly life with a prayer in the lips to his Father. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23, 46. He often sought to be alone in prayer in a solitary place on a mountainside. Sometimes he prayed alone. Sometimes he prayed all night alone. Matthew 14, 13, Luke 9, 28, Luke 22, 39. He prayed for individuals like he prayed for Simon Peter in uh, John 17, 9 and 20. And uh, notice also uh, in the book of Luke, Luke 22, verse 31. He prayed to submission to the will of the Father in Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 42. By prayer he overcame temptation, wrought miracles, escaped death, and glorified God. Jesus Christ was meek. It was an attitude of mind that is opposed to contentiousness. Meekness was manifest in his gentleness and tenderness toward others. Jesus himself said he was meek and lowly in heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Paul asked the Corinthians this question in first Corinthians four twenty one Shall I come to you with a rod or in love or in the spirit of meekness? As Christians we are to learn meekness. Galatians 6.1 says, Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men, apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. The Lord Jesus Christ manifested meekness in not breaking the bruised reed or quenching the smoking flax, but he dealt very tenderly with the brokenhearted and fanned the dying fire in the backslider. Furthermore, Jesus Christ was humble. He was humble and lowly in heart, according to Matthew eleven twenty nine. When he recommended himself, he didn't say, Come unto me because I am well educated and know the original Hebrew and Greek. He said, Because I am meek and lowly in heart. He was humble, for he sought not his own glory, but the Father's glory. John eight fifty. The Savior shunned publicity and fabulous advertising which caters to pride. The humility of Jesus allowed him to associate with publicans and sinners, Luke fifteen, one to two. And he obeyed Paul's admonition not to 
mind men of high estate, but condescend to men of low estate. The Bible said he humbled himself. You talk about humility. He took seven great steps down from glory and came down and showed up on this earth, not on a white charger with a robe and a crown, but on the seamless garment of a shepherd, a sack with a hole in the top and a hole in two sides for his arms. They look for him to show up on thrones. He shows up in a barn. The Lord of glory, brother, trailing his robes in the dust. The humility of Jesus kept him silent under outrageous charges. 1 Peter 2, 23. And the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ allowed him to get down and wash the smelly feet of dirty fishermen. John 13, 4-5. Paul says, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, in a view of this, in view of the fact that we have such a Savior with such marvelous moral character, a man who was holy, a man who was loving, a man who was sinless, a man who was compassionate, a man who had a love for souls, a man who was prayerful, a man who was meek, a man who was honest, a man who was humble. How can we help from obeying the admonition of the, Paul, of the Apostle Paul, which says, Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus. Let us not imitate like the devil, but let's reproduce by the power of God and the grace of God the blessed fruits of the Holy Spirit, Love, joy, compassion, meekness, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, and the humility of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus, not only outwardly, but inwardly, that is, pure, true, and prayerful, is the highest ambition or objective of any man or woman alive on the face of this earth that ever lived or ever will live. There is no higher goal in life you could set for yourself. There is no higher objective that you could fix for yourself in this life then after you are saved and receive Jesus Christ to mold your moral character and your spiritual character after his. He longs to live this life of character again in us as we yield ourselves to him. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 19, Let us yield our members to him as instruments of righteousness unto God, servants to righteousness unto holiness. Now, from this study about the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see our job is not to imitate him by a humble look. After all, the wolf wears sheep's clothing. And under the humility of the sheep's clothing and the meek, downcast face and the <laughs> of the slabbering, saliva-dripping jaws of a fanged creature that will break your wrist bone. But as we're not concerned about in his steps, trying to be like Christ if he were here and all that modernistic nonsense, now we're particularly interested in the thing about what would Christ do if he were here. After all, he's here. Why slander the dead? He's here. He's risen. Now we're particularly interested in Thomas Akempis' imitation of Christ by uh, living a holy ascetic life and cutting yourself off from society and trying to be a little bit higher than you are. The Bible calls this will worship in Colossians chapter 3, and it has nothing to do with Christ-likeness at all. By the same token, lest not us be so egotistical and so puffed up and uh, so stuffed with self-importance that we go around quoting Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, and then try to counterfeit his power and his miracles when we're nothing but fakers. These people who always quote Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, you notice how none of them ever try to walk on the water? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed these people who try to claim the apostolic signs and miracles are still for this age 
even though they were given to Israel, the Jews seek for a sign. Have you ever noticed how these fakers are always hot about the tongue and the healing, but never try to walk on the water? Did you ever notice that? Let me tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ had no trouble walking on water at all, and neither did Simon Peter, who is nothing but a saved sinner and an apostle. And if Jesus Christ has the same power yesterday, today, and forever in the signs of signs and wonders, any of you people who profess that should be able to walk on the water with no trouble at all. Simon Peter did. And Simon Peter is the one that preaches Acts 2.38. So we learn right away that being like Christ and being like Jesus has very little to do with getting your Bible all screwed up and then professing to be something you're not and coming out with a hypocritical profession of having the charismatic sign given to the apostles for Israel when you don't have them at all and know you don't. And the first time you ever got out on a lake and begin to walk, you'll find out very quickly you don't, although we know you didn't before you went out there. When we talk about being the law like the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not referring to the apostolic counterfeit of the false apostles mentioned Revelation 2, verse 2, and 2 Corinthians 11. Rather, we're talking about having the mind of Christ in the born-again believer so that Jesus Christ in the believer, Christ in you the hope of glory, can work out in the believer the life that pleases him and manifest through the believer the fruits of the Holy Spirit in this world today that needs the ministry of the risen Savior so much. This is what we're referring to when we refer to being Christ-like or being like Christ. Now, in today's broadcast, we've discussed at length the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. On our next broadcast, we'll take up the teachings of Christ. Now, this broadcast today includes broadcast 27 and 28 combined. Our next broadcast, broadcast number 29, will include what the Bible says about the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this very important subject, we'll finish our discussion of Christology under the headings of not only the teachings of Christ, but also the commands of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the intercessory work of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the results of his return. These will be very important subjects, and I'm sure you'll want to listen to them, and I'm sure you'll want to take notes. And if you're not taking notes, I suggest you take them down, write down the references, and keep them for private study at home, and search the Scriptures if these things be so. The entrance of thy word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. Until the same time this next week on the same station, may the Lord bless you and good day.